welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Continuing in our Hope Against Hope series, we look at Daniel chapter 3, Hope Under Fire. Take it away, Chris. It's a weird thing we do each week at church, isn't it? We set life on pause, we, we take this time to reflect on words in the Bible that were written hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and consider how they relate to us today. And I think that weirdness of what we do has been especially hitting me in our Daniel series. I mean, it's one thing to stop and listen to the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John. But Daniel... Daniel's a pretty strange book. I mean, in the second half, we have these very strange visions. But, honestly, even the narrative parts in the first half, I find a little bit strange. The context is so far removed from us. Not only do we have to get our heads around 6th century BC Judaism, we need to understand 6th century BC Babylon too. And the events are told in this kind of stylized way with this particular rhythm that takes a bit of getting used to. The dialogue sometimes sounds wooden and clunky. And yet... And yet, through this wooden dialogue and stylized storytelling of history, God speaks to us. Across the years and decades and centuries and millennia, God's word cries out to us. And this weird story about a megalomaniacal king's ego trip It's for you. It's for us. Through it, God speaks to us, proclaiming hope for our hearts, truth for our steps, life for our very lives. So let's pray that we hear God speak now. Heavenly Father, help us to understand Daniel 3. Help us to take to heart the extraordinary truths it holds that are from you and transform us by him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me retell the story, highlight a few things, and make some observations about how Daniel 3 speaks to us today. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were raised in Jerusalem up to about 600 BC. As they grew up, their lives were intertwined with the rhythms of Jewish religion. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement. These holy days that gave structure to their lives. But then, everything changed. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians invaded Judea, besieged Jerusalem, desecrated and pillaged the Temple of Yahweh. The Babylonians took the sacred items from Yahweh's temple and they deposited them back in Babylon in the temple of the Babylonian god Marduk, showing that Marduk had mastery over Yahweh, just as Babylon had mastery over Judea. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't stop there. He also took the most promising youths from Jerusalem and he trained them to be servants of the Babylonians instead. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were among them. They were deported to a new city with new customs, 
new morals and new names. They aren't Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah anymore. Now they are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Their old identities are being scrubbed out. But along with their friend Daniel, they make the best of a bad situation. And they excel in Babylon. If we go a few years on, they're now moving up the public service ladder. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar has been extending his empire and consolidating his power. And in a move that is either politically savvy or colossally egocentric, but I think most likely both, he commissions an enormous golden image to be raised up in a plane. Then he gathers all the political leaders together to come to the dedication of the image and to bow down and worship the image. If someone fails to worship, then they will be thrown into a furnace, probably the furnace on site where the golden image was cast. Don't misunderstand what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. I don't think he's trying to start a new religion. This isn't about religion, this is about control. For him, this is not about some random God. This is about Nebuchadnezzar himself. These officials have come from a variety of nations throughout the empire. They speak a variety of languages and they worship a variety of gods. And that's fine. Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheist. He's a pluralist. They can continue to worship these other gods. That's fine. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to be recognized as the ultimate authority in this empire. And so he needs them to express ultimate loyalty to him. And when the music starts, all these mighty men drop their knees and grind their faces into the dirt. Nebuchadnezzar clicks his fingers and even the strongest men don't dare defy him. And if there are some who harbour resentment and rebellion in their heart, still they bow. And as they bow, they get to witness around them just how in control Nebuchadnezzar is. Except, except some of the astrologers come to Nebuchadnezzar with a report. They tell him, when we ourselves were completely occupied with bowing down before your image, just out of the corner of our eyes, we happened to notice three men did not bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember them? They're those Jewish men that you so generously promoted to be administrators over the province of Babylon. Look at how they repay your generosity. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. If you recall chapter 2 last week, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He didn't understand it. And he gave the command that if the astrologers couldn't tell him both what he dreamed and what the dream meant, then he would have them all executed. And that was going to happen until, under the guidance of Yahweh, Daniel told him the dream and explained it. Daniel was promoted and he used his new influence with the king to have Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego promoted as well. And we might imagine the astrologers felt some sort of gratitude towards Daniel and his friends since he saved them. But if we imagine that, I don't think we've grasped human nature. They resent these Jewish men who have shown them up. Nebuchadnezzar gave an impossible command 
And then Daniel went and did it anyway. And here is their chance for some revenge. As an aside, if you're wondering why Daniel isn't right there being accused alongside them, I think the easiest explanation is that he just wasn't there. At the end of chapter 2, Daniel is given a job at the royal palace and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are made provincial administrators. So he's probably just back at the palace doing his job. But I like to speculate that if he was there, maybe the astrologers weren't quite confident enough to take a shot at somebody so close to Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they're just starting with his friends. In any case, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. This is a huge blow to his ego, but also to his plan to demonstrate that his power goes unchallenged. These men are not only annoyances, they're now political problems. So he has them brought before him and he gives them the ultimatum. If they don't obey him now and worship the image, then he will have them thrown into the furnace. If they don't bow down, he says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Consider for a moment the position Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego find themselves in. On one side they have their careers, their power, their influence, their wealth, their families and their responsibilities to their families. Their very lives themselves. And on this hand, they have God. But what good is this God anyway? They're in Babylon. They were taken from their parents in Jerusalem years ago. The sacred items from Yahweh's temple now sit in front of Marduk. Either Yahweh has been defeated or he's abandoned them to their fate. But either way, he's not here. They have every reason to just bend the knee and move on. But they don't. Instead, they make the most extraordinary declaration. King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Do you hear that? We are not accountable to you, our king. If we are to be thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. The God we serve. If there is a question of loyalty, God is the one they ultimately serve. Their God is their true king. And they are confident he will deliver them from anything Nebuchadnezzar can do. I'm not sure where this specific confidence in the face of the furnace comes from. But I think it's what they say next that is the most significant line in the entire chapter. But even if he does not deliver us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. For me, that's the high point. That's the high point, not just of this chapter, but of the entire book of Daniel. What comes next after that declaration is almost immaterial. Nebuchadnezzar loses it. They're thrown into the furnace and the king sits back to watch them burn. But soon Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement. 
Not only are these men walking about in the furnace apparently unharmed, but now there are four of them. And Nebuchadnezzar, that the fourth man, looks like a son of the gods. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar has a complete change of heart. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Only three men come out. And they are found to be unscathed. They're commended by their king for their faithfulness to their God. And they're promoted to even higher positions of authority in Babylon. That's Daniel 3. But I want to come back to that decision to forsake everything else and choose God. On this one side, status significance, relationships, wealth, life itself. And on this side, God. And they choose God. Come what may, they choose God. Why? Why would they do that? Let me reiterate their position. God let their country be invaded, their city overtaken, their temple violated. God let them be taken from their families. God left them there in Babylon where every day they have had to navigate how to maintain their Jewish heritage in a foreign city. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? So much of Jewish identity is about holiness, meaning about being distinct, being set apart. And they're trying to navigate how to do that in a foreign city. And not only are they trying to do that, they're only the young men were taken. So who has been guiding them through this? Who has been mentoring them and teaching them how to do this? They're having to learn on the fly. So much of their lives must scream that God has abandoned them. So why would they continue showing devotion to Him? That feels like a vital question. But the text doesn't explicitly raise it. We don't have Nebuchadnezzar asking them, why did you do this? The question is never actually asked. Not, I think, because the question is unimportant, but because the answer is self-evident. Why would they continue to show devotion to their God? Why would they be willing to die for Him? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth risking everything for. He's worth losing everything for. They know their God. They've tasted his love, his faithfulness, his goodness. They've seen God working in them and through them since they've been in Babylon. And they can look further back too. They can remember how God has worked for their people in previous generations. God giving them liberation from Egypt, giving them the law at Mount Sinai, giving them the land he promised them in Canaan. And because they know of his faithfulness in the past, they can trust him in the present, even though they can't see his faithfulness right now. He might not rescue them from the furnace, 
but he will not abandon them. His past faithfulness gives them hope for the future that this world cannot touch. And so he's worth it. Two and a half thousand years ago, this was a truth Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego knew deep in their bones. And it's a truth for us to know deep in our bones too. He is worth it. Whatever the cost, he is worth it. This is a truth we can know even better than they did. Because in Jesus Christ, we are able to know God even more profoundly than Shadrach knew Him. We have a better example of His loving faithfulness towards us than Meshach had. Abednego could look back and see God rescuing His people, and so Abednego was willing to die for Him. But we can look back and see the Son of God willing to die for us. Through Jesus Christ, God didn't just spare us from the furnace. He took our place in the furnace. Can you imagine how blown away Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would have been if they had known that God was going to do that? What an amazing God we serve. He is worth it. That's the message God speaks to us today through Daniel 3. He is worth it. And that's a truth that speaks to people in a variety of situations. So before we close, let me consider what this truth, that he is worth it, means for people in four different contexts, four different situations, and then we'll be done. Number one, he is worth it, even for people who don't currently follow Jesus. Daniel 3 proposes that God is worth it, and I've suggested that the one who perfectly reveals God to us, Jesus, is worth it, no matter the cost. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you are warmly welcomed. I hope you are encouraged and you sense something here that your heart lacks. If you're here and you don't yet follow Jesus, let me ask you this. Do you know that he isn't worth it? Do you know that he isn't worth following? He isn't worth our undivided loyalty. He isn't worth potentially dying for. Do you know that? I think there's often a misconception in our world that it's possible to abstain from a question like that. You know, when you have to vote for something you can be for or against, or if you don't want to commit, you can just abstain. And I think that's a position a lot of Australians have taken on this question. But just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did not have the opportunity to abstain from this practice of either bowing or not bowing before the idol, we don't have the option of abstaining from this question around Jesus and whether he's worth it. If you are not sure what you think about Jesus, have a chat to somebody who is up the front today. Have a chat to a friend you have here. Because we would love to help you work through whether or not Jesus is worth it. Number two. He is worth it, even through the daily grind of following Jesus in a world that doesn't recognize him. He is worth it, even through the daily grind of following Jesus in a world that doesn't recognize him. 
Consider with me again Nebuchadnezzar's initial frustration with these three men. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, as a polytheist and a pluralist, he hasn't asked anyone to give up on their God. They're still free to worship the God of their choice. He just wants them to also worship the image. And this is so often how our world works today. Very rarely are we asked to give up on Jesus. We're just asked to have Jesus and. We're asked to be a little more flexible, a little more fun, a little less narrow-minded or tightly wound. We're asked to be reasonable, to be okay with some compromise. You can still follow Jesus, but just do this thing too. But Shadrach and co, they understood that God wasn't just worth some of their devotion. He was worth their undivided devotion. Living in Babylon, I'm sure they had to make concessions from time to time. It must have taken so much wisdom and prayer to work out where they needed to draw the line sometimes. But when they came to an unambiguous question about loyalty, they didn't bend. Despite the cost, they refused to worship another because only the true God was worth it. We also will need discernment to know how to serve Jesus in the daily grind. But surely the one who gave up everything for us is worth giving up everything for in turn. The one who devoted himself to us is worth devoting ourselves to. He is worth it. Number three, he is worth it even when we're hurting. I want to address those here now who find themselves in a furnace of sorts. Perhaps not a furnace of persecution, but a furnace nevertheless. Maybe you are acutely lonely. Maybe you grieve. You worry, you fear, you wrestle with disappointment. You struggle with deteriorating physical health or mental health, with relationship breakdown, with betrayal. And whatever your furnace is, you just can't see God and his faithfulness right now. And it feels like he has abandoned you, forgotten you, dismissed you. And you kind of want to give up on him. Maybe not even consciously, you're finding something else to devote yourself to. I get that temptation. Why should I serve God when he's abandoned me here in this mess? But I just want to assure you, he hasn't. He hasn't abandoned you. God doesn't do that. He didn't forget his people in Babylon. And he hasn't forgotten you. He is so overwhelmingly invested in you and your life that he gave his son to die for you. He is near to you whether or not you are experiencing his presence. He hasn't given up on you, so please don't give up on him. He is worth it. Number four, he is worth it, even if that means dying. 
We have to acknowledge when we say he's worth it, whatever the cost. We mean whatever the cost. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of Christians around the world who pay gladly and dearly for the privilege of following Jesus. The fact that he is worth it means that Christians all around the world die for serving him. They are imprisoned. They're rejected by their family. They lose their jobs. Now that context, that might seem far off from St. Matt's West Pennant Hills. But even here at St. Matt's in West Pennant Hills, there are members of our congregations for whom this is all too real. This is the reality they face. If that describes you, to you who may pay so dearly, let me remind you of what you already know. He is worth it. And you may not be rescued like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are other examples in the Bible of God not dramatically rescuing people who were faithful to him. But he hasn't forgotten you. And he still draws close to you. And Jesus' death still covers you. There is a hope for you that this world cannot touch. He is worth it. In December last year, I made a crackdown by the communist regime. Over 100 members of a church in China were arrested, including their pastor, Wang Yi, and his wife. This happens in different provinces of China somewhat frequently. Wang Yi's wife was released a few weeks ago, praise the Lord, after about six months in prison. But Wang Yi himself is still in prison. Now the church had actually been anticipating the arrests. And so Wang Yi had written a letter a couple of months prior to his arrest in advance to be released publicly upon his arrest. You can just Google it and read the whole letter. But I want to conclude by reading the conclusion of the letter. Wang Yi writes this. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. The Lord's servant, Wang Yi. Brothers and sisters, may we have the conviction of Wang Yi. May we know deep in our bones like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that Jesus is worth it. Whatever the cost, Jesus is worth it. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Bend Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.